0: evening. Welcome to True Positives, Conversations That Matter. In this Bridge Anatomy podcast, I will be going over the Naivas saga. Now, Naivas is a big, actually one of the biggest per market chains in Kenya, and in, on April 23rd, they released a press statement admitting to a data breach that affected their systems. Uh, this particular disclosure is actually in line with uh, various uh, online reports we had seen uh, about multiple incidents that were affecting companies uh, in Kenya. I never didn't share a lot of technical details, but we you know that a ransomware group claimed to have, uh, to have gained access to the environment, exfiltrated some data, and uh, were demanding ransomware. To help us break this down, we are joined today by three amazing professional senders, subject matter expert. We have James, uh, who is a card, a payment cards specialist. Uh, we have a part uh, who is an instant response manager, And finally, we have Brian, who is uh, an expert witness and also an instant responder. Guys, uh, thank you so much for creating the time to be part of this. We'll jump straight into introduction, starting off with Pat. Pat, over to you. Um,
1: Morning, evening, afternoon, everyone. I can see Brian is a speaker. I think he needs to be a co-host to be able to unmute himself. So Lawrence, I think you're the one who should assign him those rights.
0: <laughs> we'll do we'll do. Thank
1: you. So um Patricia, I am an incident responder. I am very passionate about cybersecurity. I work uh, in an organization where my key role is to uh Come in when you have an incident and just coordinate all our incident responses end to end. Most of my work is spent around preparation for incidents. So it's a topic I'm very passionate about and I think I'll speak about it at length. My side hustle is being a leader at She Hacks. I know many of you know about She Hacks, so I'm also a leader there. Uh, that's my evening job. <laughs> and then uh, I'm glad to be here, I'm very excited about this podcast. And I can't wait to interact with everyone today. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much, Pat. So, Pat, I'll be checking the co-host role from you as we go on to James. Hi, everyone.
2: hope you can hear me clear.
0: Loud and clear, loud and clear, James. Uh,
2: Thank you so much. Uh, As you've said, my name is James Anyanga Omuloli. I'm a payments expert uh, that is biased in card payments, transactions that happen on prepaid cards, debit cards, loyalty cards, and also mobile money payments. That's my area of specialization. I'm um, Also have interest in fraud and risk, cybersecurity, and just making sure that as more people migrate to support their businesses online, it, it's a safe place where people can transact with trust and get the services they need. Pleasure for you all to be here with us. All to be here with us, and we hope to learn more from one another. Thank you. Thank you so thank much. You. Thank you. so
0: much. Uh, I had a bit of echo. Okay, should be. Uh, James, uh, thank you so much. Brian, I hope you should be okay. at, your much, uh, at, at much, uh, and
3: Yes. No, I'm good. I think you'd curtail to my right.
0: We don't want you doing. We don't want you doing insert.
3: Uh, Good stuff. Uh, Good evening, everyone. My name is Brian Nyali. I am a principal consultant in terms of risk, and I also lead the digital forensics and incident response team uh, for a cybersecurity firm operating in Kenya and Africa-wide as well. Um, My primary tasks is leading risk consulting in terms of assessments for clients as well as handling incident response and digital forensics investigations. I also serve uh, quite a bit of time doing um, or rather presenting evidence in court as an expert witness around digital forensics matters um, around the region as well. Um, So that's a bit about myself. I have a background in uh, system administration, network administration uh SOC operations uh, the list is on and on and on uh, also worked with lawrence at some point back in the day in our networking days so that's a bit about me i'm looking forward to the discussions that will be ongoing james
0: first question to you uh, <clears throat> i i know we had this discussion before uh when you are educating me thinking of the Naivas hack could you just please take us through what typically goes through a supermarket at the moment you give them your data specifically from a payment point of view.
2: Okay, thank you. Um, I'll take you through that. So what normally happens as a customer at the supermarket, you will go with your goods at the checkout counter where they'll be scanned, the total amount will be displayed for you and you will be requested to pay. So for here, we are going to use two modes of payment. That is either M-Pesa or mobile money or your credit card, prepaid cards, or loyalty card. So if you're paying with your M-Pesa, uh, you will be asked for the TIL number. Uh, you will ask for the till where we'll key in. You key in the amount, and then they'll verify the transaction. Now, in that case, the assumption is there's no any information of you collected. But we all remember that it's still recently when Safaricom started masking payment details, that's the phone number when you transact. So that means if you have been paying earlier or before, those details likely they are stored somewhere. Uh, most uh, merchants will confirm to you that uh, their data is through tr- transmitted and in in a safer way through SSL. Um, however, it's something that, uh, only internally their systems can confirm if that is true, but that is what we hope that everyone is secure. If say you paying by your card, then you will be asked either to tap it through NFC, or you will insert your card in the PDQ machine. They'll key in the amount. You will provide your pin and then your card will be debited. So let's now take through how this transaction goes upstream. So once you provide your card number to the card reader, um, remember uh, a supermarket is not a bank. So they, are, they, they don't own these POS devices or what we're calling PDQ or acquiring devices. So they are in a partnership with a bank which serves them as an acquirer. So the bank on the supermarket as a merchant this means that the supermarket has created a merchant account with a bank. This bank can be KCB, Equity, Family Bank, whichever. Those are the big banks that you know, or a bank that can support that service. So this bank gave the supermarket their PDQ. So when you're running your card on that PDQ machine, it means the acquirer bank is either the ABSA, Equity, or KCB, the bank that that gave the PDQ to the merchant, who is now, say, Naivas. So your transaction first will be acquired at Equity, let's use them, or ABSA. Then they'll have to route that transaction to your bank. Remember, you might have swiped your card on a KCB terminal, but your card does not belong to KCB. It belongs to, say, a family bank. So once the KCB received that transaction, they need to route it or route it to family bank to tell them that your customer is at Niva's and they are requesting for authorization this money, 10,000 Kenya shillings, to be debited from their account. So your bank now will confirm if you have that available balance. If yes, they will approve that transaction. The transaction will go back to KCB, who acquired it, and then they will send the response to the terminal at the supermarket with an authorization approved. Your card will have been debited the amount and the transaction will terminate. So the question is, where is this information? Because we understand that when the transaction is being routed, all this transaction information They are in the form of what we call ISO, ISO messages, so that the systems can understand each other. But we also know that your details, like um, the account number, the card number, the expiry date, because it has to check if your card is expired or not. And sometimes uh, maybe they're issuing uh, authorizing, authorizing and they're checking your account balance. So how is this information stored? And how is this information transmitted? Because that becomes the challenge or a point of concern when people transact. So at the POS level, what happens is most of our transactions in Kenya are PIN-based. That is based on the mandatory by the Central Bank of Kenya. Some other countries, that may be the case or not, depending on how uh, technology has evolved and also the mandates that have been put in place, considering the level of fraud in such markets. So this means that before a transaction is approved, you have to key in your PIN. And this PIN has to be verified by your bank, which issued you with the card. So this means the POS terminal does not verify the transaction on its own. There's something we call offline PIN verification. So in Kenya, that is not something that is supported, but there are markets where the POS terminal can verify your PIN without even sending the transaction to your bank. But in Kenya, that's not the case. Now, if that will have been the case, it means that your information is stored somewhere. Uh, it's called either track two data or track five, where uh, such security information is normally encrypted and stored. But in this case, that does not happen. But the only question is, when all these transactions have been approved, because Nivas have a merchant account with uh, the bank, whichever gave them the POS, they can review. That's why if maybe you did not get a service or you are debited twice, you can go to them and tell, I did this transaction on this date, but it's like my account was debited twice. Can you check from your records if that's the case? Now, the fact that they can check and confirm, yes, we got credited twice, it means they have some sort of data that maybe they're using for reconciliation, even if it's not just for storage, but for reconciliation purposes. And now these are some of the information that hackers will target. Because even if you are to run a shop, you will have to have some information, data, that you can reconcile against at the end of the business hour or at the end of the month when you're expecting to uh, now pay or share the revenues. So those are some information that hackers will target. Now, the thing is, this information may not seem so important because the card numbers are masked. Maybe it's not even uh, the, the expiry date of your data is not captured. What is only captured, it can be your account number your masked card number, and your name. For you, as a user, you will assume that information is not important because it's information you can give. Like uh, when people even display their credit cards or prepaid cards, they don't care because, like, I have my PIN. I know it's safely. Someone cannot steal it. But then now uh, consider now in this case, the information that might have just been taken is your account number and your name. Now, based on the frequency that you shop at Niva's, then if they store that information maybe from the SFTP server or one of their distributed servers, they can be able to run analytics or need to know that uh, James likely shops at Niva's every Sunday in the afternoon. And they shop there of amount not less than 5000 Five thousand Kenya shillings. Now that information is very critical to someone, for so it meant nothing. But your frequency shopping there is critical, and the fact that if they search maybe my account ID, they'll tell that I'm only ha- I- I'm likely to shop there with my Safarcom line, or my credit card belonging to say Equity. Then they will like, okay, this guy shops here with the same card every Sunday, and they are shopping at most or at least 5,000 Kenya shillings. That information to a hacker is very important because now they will target the account through another means to get to it. Because what, what the first step for them is just to get the information. And once they get that information, they will use it to see what else can they extract from that information. Because if they wanted to defraud me, they will not still use NIVAS. That's why you find um, Nevers did a a noble thing when they uh, accepted that and they communicated that everyone should be vigilant from the SMS they receive, the emails they receive, the payment links they receive, because when they know that someone can be able to create a transaction and share it, just put in your card details. You may think it's um, a valid thing or just a, a LinkedIn subscription or your Netflix subscription, but maybe they just the URL has a, some funny characters there and they defraud you, they debit your card. So they normally tell you just, just be careful because we don't know the extent at which this mess has gone to. So this information is so simple, by the way. Uh, it's like the way you can just tell someone, this is my account number, send me some money. For you, you're expecting something or you're sharing your M but you don't know if they get transaction that have ever happened to that account number, which information or which deduction they will come up with, and to make you a target. That's why you will find that an organisation data was breached. There are people who will complain they were victims. There are those who will come who will not even realise anything happened because when they run through your data, you're not a ca- you're not someone that they can target based on how you transact, the volume you transact or based on how your card activity at that place is. So now these, uh, you'll find that most people that are affected are people who are likely to be transacting there frequently or they have transacted there with high volumes. Because now that's someone who becomes a target. The hacker knows that this account likely has more money than this account. If Lawrence has ever transacted a naivess once, that data for them, it's not helpful. They will not target him. But for me, who have been transacting there every Sunday, then that is something they need. For you, you may think you are safe, but they will just keep on trying, can we access the account number or any other uh, relevant information to this person called James? Where else can we find them? Can we try to check his Facebook account? Are there any payments links that he has done because the information for them is if I've used that card any on any other social network or e-commerce site, then I will have given them all that they need. So that is their intention, and typically that's how the flow of transaction happens. But most of them they target the SFTP where card de- where information about customers is stored, and they are only targeting to know the frequency of a card transaction or a mobile transaction or how many times that person transacted there in a day. Once they get that, they will run that information against any other site that this person is likely to have transacted. Thank you. Uh, James, uh, thank you so much for that. So,
0: you know, uh, something interesting James has mentioned there is that if you regularly transact in a specific uh, center and uh, you you're a high-volume person, you're a target. So here I'm just thinking, government is already trying to milk a lot of high-earners, additional cash from tax. Then here now you have the hackers also coming after you. Guys, please do not be rich, just be average. Probably life might be easier. Now, uh, James, uh, I know you've talked about the importance of data to the hacker uh, it might appear trivial maybe to a majority of us or a few of us i, I would like you to dive deeper into that whole chain so uh, let me elaborate that in typical security uh, cases uh, when you've been breached we typically have and right now we'd run somewhere I'm seeing that trend. A lot of guys who are in that space are seeing this particular trend, where someone out of uh, country X will gain somewhere or another will gain access to will gain access to credentials. They'll gain access to a username, to a password that belongs to staff at, let's say, company B. So let me use my guess here. James is a malicious attacker there. Gains access either through phishing, through whichever uh, means. Gains access to company X credentials. What you are seeing here is that James will not go ahead to further hack company B. What James is going to do now will be to sell these credentials to, for example, Brian. Now, Brian probably Knows people who might, uh, who might want, who might take full advantage, or who might actually fully exploit those credentials. So James sells those valid working credentials to Brian, and what Brian does is, uh, Brian reaches out to Pat. Uh, he knows that uh, Pat likes <laughs> doing grant software. For the record, Pat doesn't do that. Using as an example. So, Brian knows that Pat does this as a side hustle. Tells Pat, look, I have working credentials to company B. Give me X amount of money, I'll give you this credential. Pat buys those credentials, and now Pat is responsible for actually deploying the ransomware. So, right now, what you're seeing is that we have uh, guys who are being called uh, initial access brokers. People whose job is just to find cred- working credentials to organizations. Once they have these credentials, sell them to someone else. Someone else sells them to someone who can actually maybe make way more money uh, from it. A similar thing with what you are seeing with uh, what has been there for quite some time with uh, zero days. We have companies that buy zero days uh, off the shelf. Uh uh, let me choose a random guy here. I, I see a guy called Labman. Uh, so Labman will find a zero day in uh, in my Huawei phone. Uh, Labman contacts contacts who contacts a trustee. Tells trustee a trustee. I have zero days. Uh, sorry. So Labman contacts a uh, trustee. Tells trustee I have a zero day. Trustee gives Lab uh, Labman some fee. Guess there is uh, zero day, and now trustee probably sells these to uh, companies that actually buy uh, zero day, or other hackers actually uh, cyber cyber crime groups that might find these uh, of interest. So there's always that chain. Now ca- going back to Jens, I recall you mentioned something of that sort, whereby you are saying that we might actually find that the initial guys co-breached uh, naivers will probably get hold of this data, do a bit of sanitization to find data around uh, around what? Uh, data around uh, payment then sell this to someone else. Can you elaborate more on this?
2: Yes. Um, yes. At the moment, data is gold and it's selling so fast. And any hacker who will get any relevant data, they will try to sell it. Have you ever asked yourself why nowadays when the, uh, most of the cyber criminals get hold of very important information they advertise? Because you'll ask why, why are they posting it online? Why are they saying that we were able to penetrate through these servers and we have the information? They're also raising their stake. And another thing why they normally do that is because they will not be the ones to use that information they have got to try and defraud the clients or even the card holders that their data has been stolen. Uh, maybe to last, a, a month ago, you remember there were um, hacks on PayPal, what is, what is called staffing attack. Like people were information that had ever been stolen on Facebook, your username and password, people are trying to use it to log into PayPal, just to know if I used this email, abc at gmail.com, and then I use a password 123. Is it the same account I registered with it on PayPal? And unfortunately, a lot of people will be found victim of this. So you'll find that when that information has been stolen from one place, uh, what is Some of them will do what is called staffing attack. They'll go to a different site, mostly maybe financial sites, to try and log in with the same information, just to know if that person has ever created an account on that site and it will give them access to another information they want. So back here to what has happened to the supermarket chain is, once this information is stolen, these guys will sell it. They will not be the first one to use. They will sell it in row. They'll just go to the black market or uh, the, the, the cyber criminals. They'll tell them, in Kenya, we've stolen data across a chain, supermarket chain, that has more than 87 outlets. And is one of the top transacting in M-Pesa, mobile money, because nowadays people normally don't do cash. So that information alone Someone will not want to know what is inside of it. They will like, how much information do you have? Maybe these guys will go like, we have maybe a uh, 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 one terabyte of information. So they will sell that information based on the volume, just that one terabyte of information. Now these guys who will buy this information, they are the guys now who will do. They will sort it out to know. Ah, uh, these are invoices from. Um, suppliers, this is customer transactions, Uh, these are refunds that people process, and this is something else. Because what you need to note is most people target refunds, because most refunds are fraudulent. So that information is very important to them, because they want to know. So now when the second party have bought this information, and they have sought it, then they will like to also sell it out. They will ask In another, just a black web. Who is interested on refunds processed in Kenya by this chain supermarket? Now, they will sell that data to a specific person. Another one will be interested with only customer names and emails. Say maybe your loyalty card, you provided your email address and your phone number. There is someone who will just want that data alone, nothing else. So they will sell it as name, phone number, and email address. That will go on its way. Someone will be interested or in now the card details and the frequency they are selling. So you'll find that now these second groups have sold this data classified to close to, say, 10 or so different people. Because there's one who will just be interested in invoices. Now, the guys interested in invoices are the guys who will want to know maybe when this organization is sold What can they play around it to know? Because they can even sell this data to black market. When people say, when people are buying stock exchange, they'll tell them, no, we have inside information about these guys. This is what they owe and this is what they are owed. So that information is also now just relevant to someone else. Now, you'll find now this data may be stolen by guys in partners with Kenyans, Nigerians, South Africans, Ugandans, wherever, that group has sold this data to guys in South Korea. The South Korean guys have uh, like, uh, clustered this data into chunks based on whatever they need, and they are selling it to maybe another portion to guys in China, another portion to guys in Russia, another portion to guys in United States of America. And you'll find now there are those who guys who just want the credit card information because once they get it, they will try charging it through online transactions. Maybe guys who are maybe doing fraudulent at the ports. So when a transaction comes, they just try to use your card to clear cargo at the port, something you don't know. But then I find that in this chain, they are close to four or so parties. So if you got someone like a hacker, trust me, there's nothing you can do with them. Yes, you can lock them, but those are not the end users of the data that was stolen somewhere. That's now a chain that governments need to understand and cyber security experts who are trying to prevent this need to understand that the end use of this information can happen even after three years. Now, say maybe they got hold of uh, someone bought data containing the credit card information and um, just the credit card information alone. So they'll find out that my card has been used admi- at Naivas for the last three years. Now, someone who has knowledge around card payments will know that this card, even if it has been spending there, it is near expiring. So the value of this card should not be that much because it's almost expiring. Most of the credit cards will expire after one year, after three years or four years, depending on your bank. However, they'll find that Lawrence card swaps there maybe monthly, but um, Lawrence is uh, the, the the card, he has transacted only that card in the last one year. Now, that is very critical information because they know in the next two years, Lawrence is likely to still be using that card because it will not have expired. That information is so critical to them so that they know if they were to try and run fraudulent transactions on these cards, they know for Lawrence card, we can try it in 2027. But for James Card, we should try it this year because it's almost expiring. That information is so critical to them. But the guys who stole the information at the first hand, they have nothing to do with those analytics around what the information is. They just sold that information uh, as a bulk of it. So that's now what we also need to understand. So you'll find maybe uh, if they got your information on loyalty card where you provided your email address, one day maybe they, 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 they try the stuffing attack on paper like it happened a month ago, they will try to use that email address. And if by any chance they ever accessed a Facebook account similar to that email address and they got the password, they'll try to use your email address they got somewhere else and a password they got on Facebook or Gmail to access your PayPal account. So that's how these things work. It's one thing, but if you follow through, it's a lot of un- thing that you may not even imagine because we, we assume it. We are not exposed to it. If you go to markets like Europe or America, they say that before you issue a credit card or a prepaid card to a cardholder, you need to train them on the risk they should expect, the fraud level they should expect, and how to be safe. They'll also audit your system to know that you can protect that customer from that. In Kenya, we have not yet reached there. So you'll find that once these activation programs happen in supermarket, at schools, at our places of work, we subscribe to it because we also like convenience. Not knowing that, God forbid, the leak of that information, just one detail of it, it will be used to collect other informations until they have the entire of your profile. And that can happen across a number of years. But at the end, they'll come back and try to hit your account. So just for you to be updated and to employ the current security measures in place. Thank you.
0: Uh, James, uh, thank you so much for that. So uh, as I move forward to uh, Brian, so <clears throat> based on, on what James uh, has done, and honestly, I was in that space, uh, when that, <laughs> even before Naivas disclosed the breach, I think guys in this in the cybersecurity space already knew uh, something was wrong. And I believe at that point, the main concern was uh, Naivas as an organization and uh, its customers. But just listening to James, I'm like, huh? Naivas partners are most probably affected. So one, as James mentioned, Naivas has a contractual agreement with banks. I think he called them uh, for, for, for Naivas to be a merchant. Then Naivas has loyalty cards. I know almost for a fact that Naivas doesn't print those cards or manage them. This is uh, outsourced to another third party, very big fintech in Kenya, uh, a card, let me say, card payment processing company in Kenya. So meaning that all those, almost all the information Naivas has, not only on the customers, but the uh, its suppliers, uh, vendors. That information has probably been breached. So, I'm just hoping, and if we have a uh, practitioners here, yeah, professionals who do risk management, I'm hoping you are picking up all these uh, lessons because uh, what James has described is a supply chain attack. So, I'm actually hoping that Naivas also went ahead to inform uh, their third party or other their dependencies, internal or external dependencies, that they had a breach And there's a probability that the information might have been a compromise. So moving on to Brian. Uh, Brian, should we be expecting more of such attacks uh, when it comes to guys like uh, Naivas? Uh, what are you seeing out there in the world. And then lastly, banks and circles are regulated, at least from a cybersecurity point of view, in addition to the Data Protection Act. How what do cast the public get for uh, for supermarkets, given that they, they handle pay you know, payment information? Are they also regulated or uh, it's basically the market doing what it can. Uh, Abran, I hope that makes sense, but uh, over to you. you.
3: Um, Yes, Lawrence. um, I want to say thanks to Muloli. He's he's really explained it very well in terms of how payment processing happens. Um, Just as I get into what you're saying uh, in regards to what we're seeing um, around especially the African market. I'll really focus on Africa within uh, my speaking. So when, when we look at, I'll start first with the global perspective. When look at the global perspective, um, there, was, there was a certain very good report done by McKinsey, and they were saying that uh, from surveys that they had done, about 80% of the observed threat groups Uh, that were operating between 2021 and 2022 and more than 40% of the observed malware had never been seen before. Um, This is an indication that uh, definitely things have changed and scaled up on a significant level, meaning that we're going to see an upsurge. Um, If we even look at the group that carried out this um, ransomware attack on Naivas, they're ALPHV or otherwise known as BlackCat, they only came into the scene in late 2021. That's about November 2021. And if we look at uh, statistics around ransomware groups, they are ranking third at the moment in terms of their uh, overall activity across the globe uh, in all continents. So if a group that started or surfaced in 2021 has risen to one of the top three and they're using some of the new languages in town such as Rust uh, for their the ransomware coding and all this, it's, it's an indication that this will definitely keep increasing. If a group that surfaced in 2021 is already making headlines to the extent that it is um, this week i think they've they've targeted some big u.s companies uh, the same group and they're threatening to release that data as well so that has definitely shown a def- a big upsurge in um, as far as other ransomware groups they've also uh, Stepped things up. We did see the other one on KAA that was recent. There was another one on um, uh, Jubilee Insurance. There are a number of people and organisations that have been targeted, or this even runs from a group saying that they have targeted them and they have tried to expose their data. So uh, this will definitely keep happening. It 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 is not uh, by chance that this happens. These guys really invest in in. Uh, new technologies, new techniques, and in exploits that um, are taking people by surprise. Now, the other thing that is causing an upsurge in these things is the emergence of affiliates. Um, in, in simpler terms, the <laughs> these guys are getting people who they'll use to do their dirty work. So they hire foot soldiers will carry out the operations and promise big figures like if you look at this one the black cut guys uh, for the affiliate program they say for a ransom of up to 1.5 million US dollars the affiliate will get 80% of that Uh, for up to 3 million you'll get 85% above 3 million USD ransom that are paid you get 90% this becomes a huge motivator for Uh, people to start engaging in ransomware, and uh, this can be attributed to the uh, first rise in this sector. And the other reality is now ransomware has become ransomware as a service. You know, the way you'd subscribe to uh, using something like like Outlook uh, uh, as a service. You know, you just get the application and run it and use it without having to worry about where it's set up, who is managing it and all that. The ransomware groups have also gone into such an such a uh, ransomware as a service setup where you can get a rookie or someone who has never written code, doesn't know anything technical, doesn't know how to use a command line or anything like that, and just teach them on what exactly to do to deploy it, and that's that and that's the end of it you know that's how someone has gotten infected with the ransomware so it's they've they've reduced the barrier to entry more or less uh, the same way we talked about script kiddies now ransomware groups have made it extremely easy for anyone to execute ransomware within an organization and as a result try and get um, big payouts from people trying to recover their data or gain access to it. So that's that's been a trajectory that I've seen. Um, for sure across the African market, one thing that's become clear is things we see in Kenya are definitely happening in Nigeria and definitely happening in South Africa. And things that happen here are definitely replicated to Rwanda, Uganda and TZ uh, soon after, within no time. Um, some of the groups that we saw operating in Kenya for the longest time, targeting banks, circles and all, shifted their focus to rwanda and ug um, there was one group that i believe was highlighted that were arrested within rwanda um, for carrying out attacks against banks and trying to get as much money as possible from them so as different countries adopt these things mobile money etc like now if you look at ethiopia there's a Saf- safari come have gone into that market and are introducing mobile money um the trajectory that we observed in Kenya was banks started offering mobile banking services to counter and try and um, get a piece of that pie. And as a result, most a good amount of banks uh, got into that space without thinking about security, just trying to fill in that gap. And there was a time that there was such a huge upsurge in uh, such kind of cyber crime that was targeted at mobile banking, internet banking uh, platforms because we were just trying to fill in the gap but these guys take advantage. So if you look at a country like Ethiopia, that's what we project as something that may happen if uh, organizations don't take a keen interest in how to secure those platforms and just rush to the market to offer it as a service. So that's that's Generally, how things have been looking around the African market, and yes, targets for banks, circles, microfinances have definitely gone up, as well as now moving away from these organizations because a good number of them have invested heavily in security tools and a lot even have serious cybersecurity budgets, so. Now it becomes easier to start targeting some of these other organizations that may be unregulated. You know, you've talked about regulation. In this case, CBK and uh, SASRA that deals with SACOs, they're tight with their, uh, their regulations and you're required to comply the mobile money providers, the banks, etc they all comply to CBK and they have timelines to show that they have done VAPTs, they have done risk assessments, they have done compliance checks. On the other hand, um, some organisations or some businesses do not have this type of uh, regulation because you know, money is not directly involved in them like banks and circles and microfinances. So, these organizations may fall into those cracks and not really um, take certain things as seriously as these others would. Um, so that definitely has given a chance for these people to target them. And the data that organizations hold is critical. When you look at hospitals, uh, patients' data, that becomes very critical for law firms. There's data about their clients and information that is sensitive that they hold uh supermarkets they have a good amount of client intel and information the list is on and on about uh, kind of data that different organizations hold so that's that's a brief uh, perspective in terms of what we're seeing across the african market Um, but also just to dive in a bit on a bit of technical things around what we're seeing Um, These threat actors have moved away from your typical malware that you knew or that has always been off the shelf that anyone could take. Uh, People are deploying their own malware and writing it uh, fresh. So if you're going with uh, antiviruses that are looking for traditional malware, they won't detect it because this is new malware that hasn't been seen before, a new code that hasn't been looked at before to be flagged as malicious. Two, if we look at um, Conti, if we look at now this black cut guys, they're moving away from uh, certain tools and using Windows native tools to execute their malware. Uh, there's RegServer32 being used by um, Conti, there's DLLhost being used by this BlackCat, PSExec, WebUtil, WMIC, CMD.exe, Net.exe. All these are uh, more or less Windows native and trusted or normal administrative tools that are used in any environment. So when they're now being used maliciously, um, the default reaction that most organizations would take in the past is just block all those tools. But now these ones are used for everyday operations. You can't really block them because your administrators now uh, stuck in terms of trying to help or administer the environments. So these are some of the challenges that organizations are facing in terms of preventing detecting and blocking such kind of activity um, which has become a significant problem and people are trying to find ways around building playbooks to detect uh, such kind of things and improving their monitoring scenarios and such um, activities. Then Um, one thing lawrence i'll also mention is um, one of the things we've come across or i have come across in many investigations is people can't even say or articulate what data has been exposed uh, and such kind of things happen because they haven't classified the data so they don't even know what has been exposed by data classification i mean that within your environment, you can actually say that um, clients' details or payment card data sits on this server, on this system. So if this breach touched this system, then I know client data has been exposed. But if organizations haven't gone to that level of even understanding and labeling where the data sits and what type of data sits there, then it becomes a problem. Because how do you even report to the data protection uh, commissioner that we have had a likely breach and this is the kind of data that's been exposed. If you don't have any way of uh, knowing what kind of data sits where. Uh, two, it becomes a problem because there are time limits within which you have to report. If you can't tell which data has been exposed or which data, what data sits on which system, you have to start doing it after the incident. That becomes a huge problem for you you'll highly likely not be able to articulate that well. And as a result, you may get a fine from the data protection um, officer or commissioner in that case. So that's 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 a brief on, on these things uh, in terms of the questions you've asked around what we're seeing around the African uh, continent. And two, in regards to regulation, it's, it's, it's a double-edged sword. We call for regulation, yes, it's good, but uh, the problem we have in African markets is to some extent over-regulation because um, you may call for regulation and then it becomes, uh, it gets to a point where people can't even start to operate businesses because of the number of regulatory hoops or loops they have to jump through. So in as much as we call for regulation of some of these players, I'd really say let's do it with some level of caution or understanding because, judging from how our leaders operate, you know, you've talked, there's a time crypto was being talked about and all these things, and the default reaction was none of that is allowed, you know. So, we have to really uh, play it safe in terms of calling for regulation. Yes, it's necessary to some extent, but at the same time, let's not stifle growth and business and thriving uh, across um, many things that we're trying to operate and create a good economy around.
0: Uh, thank you so much, Brian. Uh, uh, thank you so much, uh, Brian. So, uh, I think we have around 29 minutes or so. I would like us to wrap these up, at least from our guest speaker, maybe in the next uh 15 minutes, uh, then I uh, will give our audience opportunity to ask questions. So uh, before I go to part, so if part will probably talk about preparation, uh, one thing I wanted to share, and uh, I would actually like to get feedback from both Pat and Brian, given that they're uh, both co-hosts, so that at liberty to talk. If we could speculate, how naivus got breached could be very interesting to listen uh, from you guys who are the experts in regards to how this could have happened. Now, I th- hopefully you'll come to that point. Uh, one, point. Thing to... Uh, one thing I wanted One thing I wanted Sorry, Brian. So, <clears throat> previously, what, probably three years back, what most attackers will do was uh, <coughs> to target you. So, these attacker, threat actor will come and know that we are going to target neighbors. So they were very, very granular in regards to who they were targeting. From the word goes. so in cybersecurity, we have uh, fancy words like the cyber kill chain that basically talks over the steps an attacker or a threat actor will go through from the moment they identify you to the moment they actually compromise you and uh, meet the objective. So way back from the first step, the threat actor knew they were going to target brian but right now what you are seeing is that a lot of come a lot of threat actors uh, they're basically scanning the internet so internet will the internet will typically have uh, certain services that are publicly accessible that should not be accessible uh, the internet will have passwords sitting just somewhere if you know where. To look for. So, we are seeing trends where threat actors will actually scan the internet, identify high, high value, low, easy to exploit vulnerabilities, then do some form of a prior- prioritization or some form of evaluation. For example, they scan the Kenyan space, which, by the way, is possible. So, I'm seeing some very interesting guys in this call. You can actually scan the Kenyan IP space and identify more or less all public exploitable vulnerabilities. So if I were in that space, and I know if I were in that space, I'll scan the the Kenyan internet space, identify all vulnerability, similar to what James says, then group them based on organization, then give each an organization a score. After my scan, I have five organizations. I see organization one is a a hospital. Certain ransomware groups uh, don't target hospitals at all. So like, no, I can't target these. I see organization B is a supermarket. Interesting. I see organization C is a school, public school. Typically, they don't have cash. So based on that, there's a high likelihood that I'll actually go for the supermarket. So, just going back to Brian, if you are to speculate based on your experience, what are some entry points that uh, this specific threat actor used uh, as the initial access uh, vector? Um,
3: thank you, Lawrence, for that. Um, based on investigations I've done across the region, especially ransomware ones, um, and even the ones targeting financial organizations and all, the main entry points. I'll, I'll try and break this down into a few points, but I'll move a bit fast. So the main vectors that this goes through is one, exploited vulnerabilities. The vulnerabilities that are on systems that are exposed to the internet, exchange servers, antivirus servers, internet banking servers, etc, servers that just have direct internet access or people can connect to. Two, firewalls that people have exposed because of granting vpn access for their users or people to work remotely Um, so vulnerabilities in such kind of systems when they exploited they're able to gain access to them and then gain access to the internal environment Um, two is compromised credentials Uh, people can go and search on there are many times when credentials are published that, oh, organization X has, or a certain company has been breached, and people's emails and passwords have been exposed. Uh, people can go and check for organization names. They, they wouldn't start checking for Gmail addresses, etc., because those ones may not uh, have much value. So, that target company related email addresses. And with that, most people use the same password. Um, for their individual staff and their uh, company related items and as a result people may not even change their passwords after such a breach occurs people also forget the type of uh, accounts they create so they wouldn't even realize when such a breach happens so compromised credentials in that case there are these initial access brokers that we've talked about who will look for credentials anywhere and everywhere and even conduct phishing campaigns and get people's credentials and then sell them to such actors. Uh, We have vendors as well as another entry point. So people will target vendors if you're a bank, I mean you've spent a lot of money to secure your systems. But there's a soft underbelly in your vendors because they have access to the internal environment Uh, but they may not have the same stringent rules set up for their vendors. So they may compromise a vendor company or third party provider and as a result ride on that third party provider's access into your environment. And lastly is malicious insiders, where disgruntled employees, disgruntled uh, third parties or vendors and such kind of people are utilised or even staff who may not know much We've had cases where cleaners are used to go and plug in a flash disk somewhere or plug in a Raspberry Pi somewhere and such kind of things, or just leave a laptop uh, with a modem connected and plug it into the LAN. I mean, those are, they look like trivial things, but as a result, it results in a compromise. Then why do they target this internet-facing servers? Things like exchange and antivirus servers, they have direct internet access which means they can be able to gain access to your environment long term so if i'm able to plant something like AnyDesk, desk team viewer dw agent or mesh agent on any one of these internet facing servers like your antivirus server or your exchange server you'd hardly notice that there's internet traffic from it and people don't mostly monitor them and also two, if i compromise your antivirus server and you see connections to other systems, it looks normal. So, someone won't raise the flag about I'm seeing connections from my antivirus to all other critical servers in the organization. It's expected because of scanning. So, you wouldn't flag it. As a result, this guy spent time in your environment connecting to other systems and pivoting to the rest of the network. Um, just uh, on the same trail, One thing that's clear is these guys spend a minimum of a month to three months within your environment, where they scope, they gather information. And as Lawrence, you were saying, they take time to understand you. They'll find out whether you have sensitive information, what kind of sensitive information, what is its value in the black market. And is it worth blackmail? In this case, if it is, then they go ahead with a ransom. If it's not, they'll just get whatever data they can get and leave you uh, in that case. The other thing is they'll also check. They've, we've had cases where people, they even go to the extent of finding out whether you have cyber insurance. And that, for them, points to you having money uh, or that. Even if you lose money, they'll be able to, or you'll be able to recover it from your insurance premium. And then now the tail end of all this is cleaning up. If after an incident you don't clean up, these guys leave their tools for persistence there and they'll come back. They'll give you time, you'll recover, you'll think things are good, but they left some persistence tools in there. They also have low seasons uh, as other organizations do so when they've gone through their circle of new targets, they go circle back to the old targets where they left persistent tools and come back six months later, a year later, two years later. And the, the tunnel that they had left, the any desk that they had left with unattended access allowed is still working. In such a case, they'll still gain access and go about the activities.
0: Uh, thank you so much, Thank you so much, Brian. So moving on so moving on to part. Uh, so far uh, so from your experience, what can organizations like NIVRS uh, and similar in that space as supermarkets, uh, hospitals, as uh, schools? What measures can they put in place to ensure such an incident doesn't happen to them? And in those unfortunately, regular cases where it happens, what steps can they do to just ensure that uh, they limit the impact?
1: Thanks. Thanks, Laurence. So um, I think we can all agree that, uh, first of all, data is the new gold, as James said. So all these threat actors will be out there trying to get data about us so that they can either uh, be able to get into another system, another um, organization to steal more information, or they can infer details about you, build a profile about you, and steal from you. And we also agree that um, the type of attacks we see these days, they are, let me use the buzzword in the industry right now, they are sophisticated attacks. So uh, James talked about uh, threat actors living off the land where they come and they use uh, native Windows tools to carry out their malicious activity, where um, regular tools or tools that are not necessarily malware are used to carry out evil, to do evil within our network. So when we put ourselves in that frame of mind, we accept that uh, incidents and breaches will happen. So we shift our perspective to, uh, yes, we will do everything we can to protect ourselves against uh, incidents happening. But in the event it happens, we want them to come and find us prepared so that we have um, the mindset that, uh, as incident responders our goal is number one to make sure that as soon as an incident happen we are able to get the business back uh, the organization back to business as soon as possible with the secondary goal of um maybe preserving evidence for the court meeting regulatory requirements and um making sure that we never have a similar incident learning from that so i, I like to think about incident response in three phases, three phases that can be mapped to the NIST uh, framework where we have activities we do before the incident, activities we do during the incident, and activities we do after. So I like, I my favorite part of the IR cycle is what we do before the incident, the preparation bit, because this is where we get to do a lot of things, and the more time we spend preparing for an attack, the shorter the time we will spend responding to incidents. Our um, response time will be shorter. We will be able to make sure that we have a very small attacker dwell time in our network and get our businesses back uh, to work as soon as possible. So what do we do during preparation? Of course, we have the entire aspect of creating our organizational uh, security architecture having the necessary tools in place having the firewalls in place and all the security uh, tooling that you will need and then another important thing is having your processes and your governance in place so this is where we will design our um, all the processes that plug into cyber security so our um, assurance processes, and most importantly, our incident response processes. So in the beginning, uh, when you're doing preparation for an incident, it's very important to have an incident response plan. So the response plan will guide you. When an incident happens, this is what we do. So preparing for incident is very technical and as well non-technical, because when you're preparing, you have to consider the technical aspect. So, um, Do we have a secure network where we shall fail over into? Do we have a a proper jump kit for forensics? Do we have the necessary tools to gather information that we need to investigate further? And also the things that many people tend to forget are the human aspect. During an incident, uh, we need to make sure people are fed. During an incident, we need to make sure people take regular breaks because these are very high-pressure situations. Imagine trying to work on your console and your MD or a director is standing behind you who is an executive and a technical person. You're trying to type things into the console. They're asking you, what are you doing? So much pressure. So we need to have someone to manage upwards, to manage the leadership team so that our engineers can can work uh, in peace and at a good Without a lot of pressure. So, having those um, measures, the measures, having those plans in place uh, helps us to be able to focus where you need. So, if you have um, an incident commander, for example, whose work is used to manage upwards, uh, make sure the CEO, the the directors, the MD, all the senior leadership team are um, informed about what is happening. Are, given um, the assurance that the engineers are working so that they don't have to come and disturb the engineers. I find that a very important thing that is normally overlooked. Uh, Also feeding your people, telling people to go rest, because incidents can take days to resolve. So you don't want people burning out in day one. You want to stagger your resources so that people are fresh, go outside, come back with a new perspective. Also during the preparation phase as we pre, as we plan and have our processes both technical and people-oriented processes it's also important to look at um understand your environment so um, you would want to do a crown jewel analysis understand what is your important data uh brian mentioned that it's important to know what data you're hosting so map out where are they do a proper threat model um understand where everything sits, how things are interconnected, so that if there's an incident touching on aspect A, you know how it will impact another system B, that when you look at it at a glance, you don't see the connection, but there's a connection. So having that proper understanding of the environment is important, and also for regulatory purposes, it's important to report your data. Now, as we do our preparation, it's also important to sit and understand what, our, what are our legal end, Regulatory requirements. So, for example, if you're in the banks and circle space, you need to understand uh, you're governed by CBK. So, what are what are the requirements with the new Data Privacy Act? What do you need to report to the Office of the DPO? So, having an understanding of that uh, will make your life easier during an incident because you will know what you need to do. Now, uh, once you have your preparation done. Now you're set and ready to face incidents so they come. So, going by the newest um, process, so you have the preparation, that's what you do before the incident. So, during an incident, uh, we shift gears, our attention has to be laser focused, uh, we have to be very serious. Now, uh, in this phase, we start by detecting an incident. So how would you detect an incident? So if you have a SOC, a security operation center, or um, any other mechanisms, you need to make sure that when an incident happens, the relevant people are made aware. So the information is gets to the people who will deal with it. And then, of course, the analysis will be done at that point. So um, trying to map it out to the incident you're talking about the nervous incident so i don't know how it was detected but uh, once i think the pertinent people got the information i think they went down into trying to analyze and figure out what happened i know they brought in a uh, CrowdStrike, a good um, ir firm who came and probably assisted mm-hmm. with the analysis just to see the scope just to scope it out understand the criticality it's important to know um the criticality in terms of what assets are affected and you remember the crown jewel analysis we did in preparation so if you know which um assets are they your crown jewels it gives um different priority to how you react so for example if they would have said that um this uh, ransomware gang if we said we have um nervous data and then they call in CrowdStrike, and then they're like um Actually, they just got into this old machine that has no connection anywhere. They don't have much data. That would have been different from they said, Okay, they got into this server. They have access to all this information. How we respond to that is very different. So once you've been able to detect, analyze, prioritize, understand the scope, we go into containment. So remember, during an incident, we are laser-focused on getting back to normal business as soon as possible. So we want to very quickly contain the incident, prevent further bleeding. For example, if um, money was being lost, you would want to very quickly close the, the, the hole uh, <laughs> where the money is draining from, and then you want to eradicate. So if it's uh, malware, you want to get rid of the malware from your environment. And then you need to do um, further discovery to see, uh, apart from these systems, Where else did this um, incident touch on? So that would wrap up your during the incident phase, what we do when an incident has happened. And then now we go to the next fun part, my second best part, which is post-incident analysis. I think this is very important because you get to sit down with the various stakeholders and now try and map out the attack, how it happened. And as you map it out, you identify your weaknesses, your vulnerabilities, and come up with a plan to close and actually follow up to closure. So an incident should make you stronger. An incident should um, make you more resilient as a company because when you come to do your post-incident analysis, you will do proper analysis and Close all the holes so that they don't come back six months later, the way Brian said, and then they hit you again because you didn't clean up properly, and they had VNC in your internet-facing server, or no one changed their password. So their post-incident activities, I normally find them to take um, longer than even what we do during the incident, because we need to. It's a painstaking thing to. Piece together what happened, identify the weaknesses, and um, mitigate. Come up with better controls to close that. So, in a nutshell, that is the incident response cycle.
0: Wow, Pat, thank you so much for that particular breakdown. Done it better than most, I you know, myself included. So, uh, as we come to a wrap of this, uh, some thoughts i would just like to share, maybe for the next two or three minutes. I then uh, invite questions from the audiences. Uh, I've just been going through the Navas, uh breach notification. And before I actually got that breach notification, <coughs> when you talk of ransomware or whatever happened to NAIVERS, it doesn't happen only to organizations. It also happens to individuals. Case in point, uh, I'm in a group of uh, like bounty hunters who are based in Kenya, and I recall one of the questions someone asked us today was, uh, "I believe a friend, an individual, had actually received a ransomware, <laughs> a ransomware note. So this someone is receiving a ransomware note from their in their email, telling them that look, we have access to your data." If you don't pay us this amount of money, you are going to disclose your information. How do you even treat that? But the point here is, uh, as much as organizations are being affected, also individual users are also at risk. Be careful with the kind of uh, application you, on your, you install on your phone. Uh, what's up, GB gang? Look, I have no actually I have issues with of use of sub TV But such application are known to introduce uh, malware into your, your phone, and this gives attackers access to everything on your phone. So if you are taking creative pictures, creative videos, whatever you are doing, which is your right, perfectly okay, doing it within the confines of your privacy, you're at risk. You install, click on funny malicious link, Someone out there has access to your information. Before you know it, they are sending you evidence. Screenshot of this text to send these images and they so we are going to publish this to, to Twitter, to social media, or oh, we are going to actually send this out to your colleagues. I actually have had a personal, someone very close to me who actually went through that particular whole process. Someone got access to the information and they were threatening to send it to their colleagues, like working colleagues, tell them, look, this is what this place keeps busy doing. So uh, uh, be aware of that. Going back to the bridge. So <clears throat> Naivas did a few things that actually commendable. Recall, uh, Kenya Airport, the KAA was compromised, no statement from them, in spite of them being They're actually critical infrastructure. Nothing came out of of them. So Naivas doing this, amazing, uh, very impressive. Building on what Pat said, one thing also good Naivas did was, uh, recall, whenever there's an incident, whenever there's a crisis, uh, we have people who are panicking, people who are worried, genuinely, prematurely. At times, emotions, pressure they get, they mess people up. What Naivas did is they actually contracted a PR company. Now, that's a good thing. It can also be a bad thing. But they actually contracted a PR company who I believe, 99% confident, actually did the theft of data report, which (laughs) leads me to my next point, which also I had issues with. Uh, uh, And from the feedback I got, a lot of guys also had issues with. So it was good they had a third party, an independent uh, body doing public relations to them just to ensure if they were having an incident response team, that team was being shielded. That was commendable. But you see the challenge at times, uh, and this is my opinion, it might be biased because I'm coming from a technical space. At times the issue is if you engage such parties that are not well conversant, uh, with that particular space, then you end up causing. There's a probability you might actually end up causing more harm, more panic, because the disclosure is actually meant to give people that assurance that you're on top of things, because things are going to break. If there's any company, any person there who tells you and be hacked, man, they're lying to you. You you will be. Ha- Yeah, probably you will be hacked, either in your lifetime or in someone else's lifetime as far as that organization is concerned, but you're going to be hacked at one particular point. So when you are disclosing this, especially publicly, you need to really help people know that you're on top of things, there is no cause of alarm. And how do you do that? By ensuring that you're not bullshitting people, I forgive my friends, And uh, you are not using buzzwords and uh, just throwing technical terms here and there. If you go through that uh, breach from Naivas, the pin post on that TL, there was uh, a lot of that. Uh, Apart talked of that incident response process. If you heard her, it takes some time. So if the field guys are getting is that, huh, you guys did incident response within a day, no way, as I mentioned, guys in this space actually knew when we we, we we had good estimate when neighbors became a way of this. so there are no way certain things are going to happen within a certain time frame a technical person will actually help you know how to better phrase this better frame it you are not lying to people but you are effectively communicating commun- Communicating to them in a manner that manages the expectation and also makes you come out very strong and uh, on top of things, which neighbors actually try to do. But I just think, from a wording point of view, they had some uh, areas of improvement uh, here and there. Uh, going back on their statement, so it's one thing, and this is just not neighbors, it's one thing to transmit information via SSL or TLS, which is OK. It's a totally different thing to store your information in a secure encrypted format. For the record, information on your phone can not be encrypted by TLS or can be protected by TLS, like Torizajaba. Java. It's impossible just because of how TLS functions and uh, which layer it works at there are better ways to communicate that you are actually encrypting information uh, at rest you are encrypting information in transit uh, with tls you might actually be doing both of them but if you if you use the wrong terminology then you lose people because people will actually see that misconduct, uh, that that disconnect and start poking holes in your, your statement, people would be like, no, there's something that uh, we are missing here. Naivas did a commendable job. Like I'm not saying to them, but they did a commendable job. Posting on social media is not enough. Like I, I think that it, Naivas has probably, if, if your majority of users are paying via m SMS are cheap, especially if you're working at the scale Naivas is. Why just not send an SMS notification telling people that? Because, <laughs> you know, thinking of it is actually absurd. If you are paying via cash, guys who are in OPSEC probably you want to pay via cash. If you are paying v- via cash, then all these supermarket entities will have limited information about you. If you are paying via M your card, then they have the information to actually reach out to you and uh, notify you. Those small things go a long way in helping your user base retain their trust in you. And actually know that, are you on top of things, you take uh, their security and uh, your security uh, seriously. The last thing, vendors, uh, I believe uh, both part and uh, a brand mentioned. These and all of this information is publicly accessible. Naivas has a big branch, and this applies to almost everyone. From branch to branch, most probably they are doing via uh, some form of a VPN, a point-to-point VPN. That infrastructure is probably Subcontracted setting up of that infrastructure is probably subcontracted by another to another party. For Naivas, I'm fairly confident based on what I've been able to discover just researching for this, that they have a contractor that probably is helping them in interconnect these things. This is where that all you being compromised from a vendor comes in. So Naivas, case from Naivas are here, well and good. If we have security engineers, practitioners, managers, you also want to analyze that particular risk because Brian correctly put it. You might be doing everything well, but then you have your vendor who actually installs the door, for, the door installs the lock, installs the, the windows into your house. But they are doing a craft job giving you substandard locks, uh, giving you substandard windows. So you have an amazing setup, but anyone can easily lockpick your main door and get into the house. So you always want to be aware of the risk your vendors pose and ensure you are proactively managing it. Then with that, took slightly more minutes. Uh, I'd like to open the session to any anyone uh, within the uh, space for a question. I'm trying to figure this business thing out. I believe you typically raise your hand, uh, request to speak. I'll approve your request, and uh, we'll try our best to respond to your question. So if we can do that, maybe in the next five minutes, that will be appreciated. And apologies for uh, taking longer than expected. Okay, am I seeing any question? I see one request. I've seen the request to speak speak okay remove speaker. Uh you guys should be able to speak, if I'm not mistaken.
4: Uh hello. Hi.
0: Hi everyone. Yes, I okay. hope.
4: Okay. I sorry I think you're admitting me, but now uh what 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 Part and Brian have said is quite true. But now when we come to the reality on the ground, we can start by that I won't mention names but there's an insurance that also got hit. And mysteriously mysteriously they have a they have a robust setup that I know and they had all the uh, bells and whistles but still got hit and now when it comes to the reality on ground some some of the things that we might advocate can happen was just as a fantasy because companies will do a a cost-benefit analysis where they won't they won't able to they'll see having all of this and haven't been hit they have never been hit and won't be hit won't won't happen. even if you go to the sarsa and the C B K. For CBK, if you have an incident, it's usually 40, you report within 48 hours. And I think for the data protection is usually the same within 48 hours. But you come sometimes even the people mandated or tasked in doing some of those things, actually flaunting the rules. You might find someone is who can say is a, a whole data, proce- uh, data protection officer, for a huge bank but using open source tools i think most people will know where i'm getting where i'm going along with this but even if you advocate <laughs> even if you, advo- you, you, you advocate for him and tell him through some back channels that this is not supposed to be doing it all it all lands on deaf ears so as much as you may want to add to strengthen the cyberspace sometimes is you can take uh, pardon you can take a cow to the river but you can't force it to drink so that's uh, that's that's what that's what I've seen that's my experience because apart from the what we've seen even NGOs have been hit locally and small small banks even some small circles have been hit and small banks but some of them won't even report others even have there's i'm guessing people also know there's a local there's a Kenyan apt which has been in in the in the market for a couple of years hitting some 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 small some mid tier banks. But this never—they never come to fruition because once it's reported to CBK, as I said, within the 48 hours, CBK will do a, uh, an investigation. Quote: "Investigation is in quotes within a few days, and it's report and it's and it's case closed. Uh, ad, uh, ad, uh, adjustments are passed, and life continues. So you can't really force—you can't take—you can take a cow to the river, but you can't force it to take water. And thank you for the for the insights."
0: Uh, totally impartial agreement. So I'll say if majority of what you are doing right now, even this podcast, based on experience, we will we'll see its benefit maybe a year or two from now. Kenya, what I've been in the industry for close to ten years. Where we were five years ago is worse. Where we are right now is better. We have made a progressive improvement. Three years ago true positive of breach was was never uh, going to happen. Uh, We didn't have even the right uh, regulation, uh, the the right legislature to actually enforce some of these controls that we're having. But you have seen the ODPC actually going after certain certain guys. I know uh, CBK, well, I've had the privilege of knowing some of the new hires they have. Very respected guy, very amazing guy. So, the hope here is we are creating awareness. Uh, we are telling the guys, companies, institutions that users, especially Kenyan users, are more privacy aware. Uh, we have guys like Mozilla actually funding programs to teach about data privacy, user privacy. So I, I believe in in the long term, the market will correct itself uh, based on this uh, continuous awareness you are doing and just Telling people that we are aware, we know risks are out there. We know there's way more that can be done, but still, all, all is not uh, rainbow, sanctions and unicorns. Cybersecurity is a cost center, as in literally, it drains a lot of uh, cash from companies. For you, for, for any company to have a good program, definitely. Your leadership needs to support you. Leadership needs to support you. If the CEO, uh, the chief operations officer, finance officer, if those guys are not supporting you, then stories are jaba, You are not going to be anywhere because you're not heading anywhere. You won't be able to show profit. Each year, each year when they review your budget, you'll actually be most probably requesting for more money. But this additional money you are requesting for, and I believe the direction needs to shift. We need to take this shift. All this money, as in security, managers in security are requesting for, are being used to build confidence in your product. Building confidence in your product means you retain more of your customers. It also means as this legislation grows, you're not going to be fined 70M what GDPR in EU is actually doing to companies like Facebook, Twitter, and the likes. So cybersecurity may not immediately show you the returns, but in the long term, investing, supporting your team, ensures that the revenue you get will most probably continue, continue growing.
4: I, I Lawrence. So I think, I think with, just to just to bring something in perspective, huh? some of the PSP guidelines that came about. You should you should you should dig deep and see because the PSP came I think in twenty eighteen. Now what that before it came and that's we're in twenty twenty three. So this is five years ago or six years ago. So there's there was something that happened that formulated the PSP. We as a country we are a very reactionary country. From the head, from the top down. So, I'm a bit pessimistic because I've been in the trenches for at least for the six years, and that's why sometimes you just can't force. You just go with the one that want to go, and the rest at Kilamto Bebe Msalab. Even, even the yeah, even uh, even, totally the, even the regulator, even the regulators themselves, uh, to nation like Mungu Mungu as a whole, can't. I'm out.
0: Uh, thank you for that. I uh, like to indulge back, but the podcast so will always have sessions to indulge more. So, let me see if there's anyone who has requested to talk to speak. Uh, if you have requested to speak, just please uh, request again.
1: I think I so, don't talk.
0: Don't think you're Hello. Yes, we can hear you.
5: Okay, I appreciated the time we have shared. It's been an interactive session, an educative one. So I don't know whether I have a question or it's an observation. My first maybe thing to chip in is that we should be ready for more of this, like uh, we are not going to overcome it anytime soon. And then recently I've seen the race in many fintech, how can I put it? So there have been many fintech organizations, some have been launched, some by the government, some by a private organization. But again, at the same time when the application is being launched, you realize that this application is just vulnerable. Like there were some which were launched the, I won't say the time because you may know it. Okay, let me use a year ago, but it's not a year ago. So you find the application on the same day it's launched is just vulnerable to maybe it has some broken authentication issues. Now my question is, are we really regulating this organization based on the correct way or maybe we are just doing it the big fish way whereby we allow whoever is capable to do the business to do it? Okay, that was my question.
0: I think next time I'll have a panel to answer this. I'll I'll open up part. uh, uh, Brian, feel free to pick any of these questions.
1: Uh, there's something Brian said that can be summarised as compliance is not equal to security. So I think in the space for regulation, uh, you, the regulatory bodies will come up with compliance requirements. And then once you comply, you're given the licence. But in real life, we all know compliance is not security. Uh, but I want Brian to chime in into that.
3: Um, true, true to that. Um we if if you even look at um, a number of scenarios that happen in in many industries um, people will pass audit tests very easily you know Um, the auditor will come and check for this 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 and this so i will make sure all those boxes can be ticked Um, but the reality is um, it won't go into a certain finer detail and it's, it's unfortunate that it doesn't go to that finer detail, but that's that's the reality on the ground in most cases. So there are certain compliance checks that will be mandated. You'll be required to do a certain assessment, you'll be required to do this, that and the other, and you'll provide those reports and the regulator will review and approve or disapprove that uh, application. Now. If in the audit I highlight that you have this weakness and uh, over time this is not fixed or something of the sort, then that becomes one problem. When it comes to launching of applications and such kind of things, um, I may be mandated to ensure I'm using encrypted protocols and such kind of things. But when it comes to authentication bypass and such kind of things, they may not be looked at to that extent. And I am ultimately responsible for my application and its security. There are things the regulator won't check on every day on your behalf. Whenever you're doing upgrades and updates and such kind of things, the regulator won't sit there and review that you've done an upgrade or a patch for this, that, and the other. That's not their mandate uh, to to be very fair. But they require you to get your systems to a certain standard. Uh, whether you maintain them, now that's another challenge for you on your, on your part as the person who's offering these platforms. Um, I wouldn't want to bash anyone in this case, but um, everyone has a responsibility in this whole thing. The individuals who um, go up and bring up these platforms and try and make it easily accessible and to do business, the regulator on their part to ensure that people comply, um but compliance can't just be ticking boxes that i have ssl certificates uh, i'm using encrypted channels i do kyc for my clients who are joining uh, it, it has to be more than that and people also have to take uh, responsibility as uh, platform providers to ensure that they go above and beyond to protect their customers and also their businesses you know you can't just rush to launch for the sake of We had set this date in stone and had set in that had sent out invites. Um, It has to be more than that.
0: Uh, Brian, just on top of that. And uh, you know, I've been listening to this. uh, Then I saw one of our listeners, uh, and that reminded me of something. (laughs) We can actually solve all of this. Is the key is uh, having the right team. Now, for this particular person, uh, I had the privilege of being one of their, I think yes, one of of their managers, and they were working in a big telco. And, well, take. (laughs) this can be proven because this telco has won multiple awards. The security team, these guys were committed. I think locally, uh, we say Kujituma, these guys were committed. They were complying with uh, the regulator regulation, not for the sake of compliance, but these this guy were freaking passionate about security, about systems being secure, as in, I rarely come across that, but these guys were that good. If the people we hire have this mentality, people who genuinely care about users, people who genuinely care about the organization, people who... Want to ensure that user data information is uh, protected, uh, we'll solve all of these things with or without regulation. So I'll say we can talk whatever you want, but for me, you need to have the right people, right people who are not only guided by uh, by we have regulation, are we complying? But people who know security and basically know if I'm deploying a server, whether there are rules or not. This, bare minimum, have to be done before the server is sent online or before the server is actually pushed to production. And people who won't rest until that thing is done. They used to piss me at times, but I learned to appreciate what they were doing and uh, at the value that they were actually bringing into that organization.
3: Lawrence, allow me to chime in and say this, yeah? Of course. Um, of course. Good, good people are, it's fine and dandy, but the reality is the people who are above their pay grade their boards their managements and all who dictate what can be spent on technology on cybersecurity, and good infrastructure etc so i may have the best people but i'm not giving them what they need to to execute on these things you know most of the time cybersecurity security is seen as an expense it's not an investment and more often than not when we're presenting these things to the board it's huge figures thousands of dollars for x and y and z tool but at the end of the day they don't see the benefit you know when you look at marketing guys they present it as uh, we'll spend this we'll get x number of interactions with people we'll get x number of people who will view this and this and that and they they've learned the way of utilizing numbers to show the benefit But unfortunately for us as an industry, we have not gotten to that point where we're able to sell this idea to the board for them to see it as a benefit. So it's always seen as an expense. And if they don't have buy-in, unfortunately, even the best of guys will not get what they need to execute. So I really feel that at the same time, um, creating awareness at the board and management level is key for them to understand why it's important to have uh, the antiviruses, to have the good tools, to have the right people, they need to be buying into this idea at that level so that even when the right people come in, they're enabled to do what they need to do and do it right and not just take compliance checks. So that's that's my contribution as well.
0: a valid point. Okay. I think I have a topic for the next podcast. <laughs> Raha please proceed.
6: Thanks, Lawrence. Um, I think, first of all, let me just thank you for, I think, at least creating the space for us to have this conversation and having Pat and uh, Brian with us um, with their insights. So I think I'll just pick up from um your question and Brian's point on having the right people within the team. And there, there are many of us out here who would be committed to do the job. But as Brian said, there are people above, uh, the analysts or or the techies' pay grids that determine the decisions. And then when the budgets are being set at the start of the year, cybersecurity is seen as as a as a cost and as an expense to the company. And therefore, that's where the investment lacks. Because based on my own personal experience and where I found, um, even to the point where I think Yuga brought up with what he's seen in the market, is the reason why some of these attacks end up happening, or the reason why we do not respond uh, accordingly or in time, is organizations, whether big, small circles, banks, or however you look at them, do not want to put uh, the money in investing towards data like security personnel or analysts that we look um, at the data. So you find a medium sized Health facility or medium-sized circle that clearly knows they are uh, processing client data, personal information, and money and financials and everything, and they do have systems in place, but then they hire one um, IT guy or two or three who may ha- may or may not have uh, any security know-how, and they're expected to protect or. Or defend that particular organisation based on, on on the on the resources that they have, yet they have not invested in having good log analysis uh, processes, good um, security operational practices that would allow these people to actually look deeper into analysing the risks that they actually have and um, secure them. In time to prevent any particular incident, because I I think I personally have faced a particular ransomware incident in a particular organization, and at the very at, at the far at, at the like during that particular process, they were very responsive in terms of procuring the security uh, uh, services and 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 being like a managed security service provider, they they were very responsive. But then it it becomes a problem where you provide recommendations based on misconfigurations that they have on their servers, um, let's say basic password procedures that they have that they need to change. And so now these recommendations end up piling and you end up seeing let's say the same type of potential attacks that might happen to the organization and then they get hit. And then they are, they, they, they come running back to you and ask you, okay, we got hit by this particular malware or by this particular APT and what do we do from here? So now you get them you get the, you get have a sit down with them and take them through the procedure and tell them we've pro- we've been providing you with recommendations over the last six months about changing ABC on your uh let's say on your on your on your on one of your servers, which is um your 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 it's like a gold rush for you um but did you implement any of the recommendations that were set for, mm, for any configuration settings for any passwords and stuff like that? And they admittedly say no, and then they still come back to you for, uh, for for resolution. And so commitment in terms of people is there, and there are people who want to do the job, but if the decisions are not presented adequately to boards and management to showcase that, one, they, there are risks and there are true risks out there that need to, to, to be solved by security, then it becomes problematic for us as practitioners. And then on the question on... Um, like applications being delivered um and being launched and end up being vulnerable even from the very first day. It's it's a basic timeline thing. And as Brian said, companies are setting up timelines and um I think it was it Brian or Lawrence. Yeah. Uh, companies are setting up timelines and they are putting pressure on devs to kind of like meet these targets and release these products to the market because They want them out to be used as fast as possible, yet there are no procedures that have been done to analyze any risks, to do any code reviews for any vulnerabilities and stuff like that. And then you find that these particular uh, tech and dev teams do not necessarily implement any dev sec ops um, or security operations within their development lifecycle. And that becomes a problem that also needs to be looked at and investigated and actually invested into where... Um on, on the dev side, like on SDLC, uh, when when following SDLC frameworks, security needs to be part, or part and parcel of that particular process where you conduct your risk assessments during the planning stages, you do your threat modelings, you do your code scanning while doing the testing before any particular uh, publication until you get to a point where once the application has been deployed to the market... Once the reviews and tests and updates are being done, there's still security configurations that are being made to ensure that there's continuous um, security for that. But now what we find is people are just given feature sets that they need to implement. They implement, patch up those features and release to the public for use. And then you end up having the situations where uh, there's broken authentication uh, misconfigurations. There is... Um, cross-site scripting issues on their database, where usernames passwords are being leaked left, right, and center, and it becomes just a disaster overall in terms of privacy and security for that particular organization.
0: Uh, valid point. A uh, valid point. Uh, total agreement. Now, in the interest of time, I'd like to take uh, one more question, and uh, then we strive to end this by uh, five minutes past eight. Okay. Don't see. Any requests to speak? So I'm guessing that's a good thing. So to wrap it up, uh, James, uh, Brian, but uh, thank you so much uh, for honoring our invite to talk, uh, share your experiences, educators, here and there. Uh, For the guys who have asked questions, I really appreciate for you going that extra step of making these engaging. To all the listeners, Thank you so much. Uh, I genuinely uh, hope that, more or less, all of us have learned one or two things about cybersecurity in general, a few things about, actually a lot of things about the Naivas incident, uh, hopefully a few information are clarified. I know one of the biggest thing was, uh, does Naivas store my card data? No, they don't store your card data. They store some other information, but not your card data. So, uh, I'm, I'm hoping that hopefully uh, this will continue uh, being uh, a regular session. Looking forward to more engagement. Finally, if you have topic suggestions, something uh, you would like us to talk about, discuss, uh, hear different views, different opinions, more than welcome uh, to receive them. You can DM me, tag, for and sender. We'll definitely reach out. And that's it, guys, from us here. At True positives, conversations that matter. We thank you so much. Till then, see you in the next podcast. Bye for now.